Hello everybody, bienvenidos. This is, as always, your host and producer of Seminary for the Rest of Us, uh, Sabrina Reyes-Peters. I am here today with a special episode, something I didn't think that I would ever do. Uh, and if you're wondering, I do have a regular episode in the hopper. Uh, it's an episode on apocatastasis that I recorded back in October, at the end of October. Kind of been sitting on it for a while. Uh, life has been busy. So I will get that out to you for sure. But I wanted to record this unscripted, uh, semi-unplanned. And when I say that, I mean I maybe took two or three days to think about it. Um, and less than 24 hours to think about uh, what I was gonna, gonna do and say. And this is completely unscripted, um, which to be honest, I am fairly uncomfortable with doing, but I've seen plenty of mediocre white guys ramble on the internet, so if they can do it, I can, and I will probably do a much better job. Just saying. Anyhow, so the reason for my special episode today is twofold, and not necessarily in this order. Number one, I like to lay out all my cards on the table. Number two, uh, recent events uh, in my immediate context, uh, the United States, uh, have uh, caused me to consider whether or not uh, people know what they should be looking for or whether or not they know how to think about uh, what happened at the Capitol. So I'm going to do a couple things here. I am going to read a couple of excerpts uh, from theologians that I greatly admire. Uh, and bo they're both uh, unfortunately uh, deceased. Um, otherwise, I'd love to sit down and chat with them. I'm going to read a couple of excerpts and I'm going to add some commentary. And I'm going to leave the rest up to you all, my friends, family, uh, and otherwise uh, audience. So uh, the first excerpt I have is from Dorothy. And I do not know German, so I am probably going to mispronounce her last name, uh, Dorothy Aswale. Uh, she wrote a book in 1990 called window of vulnerability uh, by Fortress and in that book uh, is a chapter titled Christo Fascism. Now there are a lot of people already doing good work on Christo Fascism so that's why I didn't want to get into too much detail. Um, I want to give you guys an introduction and point you to some other great resources as I want to do here on this podcast. Uh, so I'm not going to read this entire chapter, but I thought it would be helpful uh, to read most of the chapter because Dorothy Swole is the one who coined this term, uh, Christofascism, and it relates a lot to what happened at the Capitol uh, this past Wednesday, and I will explain as soon as I am done reading. So I'm not starting from the beginning. Uh, I'll be starting from the second section in the chapter uh, called The Theologizing of Politics and the End of Secular Secularization. After the attack on Granada in the fall of 1982, Robert McAfee Brown, a leading Presbyterian theologian wrote an open letter to Christians outside America in which he showed how much, quote, civilian control of the military, one of our most cherished traditions, has been replaced by military control of the civilian population 
one of the best tests for the beginning of a turn toward military fascism, unquote. Brown pointed out how both of the most important instruments of American democracy, Congress and the free press, had been set aside during the occupation of Granada, quote, in the name of the ideology of national security, unquote. The military political doctrine of national security has largely replaced the older political values and convictions of democracy, freedom of the press, and human rights. Instead, national security has become the foundation of politics. This program has an external military side, but it also has an internal religious and cultural side. The political debate in the United States is, according to my observation, being increasingly theologized. It is not a mere ideological positions, but two religions that are fighting with one another. This means the end of the liberal era, and especially the end of its thesis about the secularization of society. The steps taken by Harvard theologian Harvey Cox, for example, from his The Secular City in the 60s to Religion in the Secular City in the 80s testify to the survival and the new polarizing of religion. What is new is the alliance of the theological element with the extreme political right. The historical perspective of neoconservatism is a comprehensive critique of those liberals who, 20 years ago, still maintained the secular and optimistic notion that capitalism would eventually free the world from want and misery. This illusion collapsed in the 60s, both in the Third World and in the ghettos of poverty in North America. The great revolutionary liberation movements in the Third World were repressed by coups, economic boycotts, CIA plots, and, when necessary, wars. But the challenges behind them and the injustice of the existing economic order were not perceived. The self-confidence of the United States was deeply wounded in the early 70s by the loss of the Vietnam War and by the oil crisis. The extreme right has a ready answer for all of that. It demands a politics of strength, not, not of justice. The conservatives united by blaming liberalism for all the problems it neither could solve nor wanted to solve. The welfare state had caused the collapse of the Protestant work ethic. A weak program of national defense had allowed the Soviet Union to win the the arms race. And finally, the women's movement had destroyed the American family. Ronald Reagan himself referred to pornography, drug addiction, and the collapse of the family once, quote, the cornerstone of our society, unquote, as the symptoms of the moral decline of the United States. According to his view of history, quote, all our material prosperity and all our influence are grounded in, on our faith in God and the basic values that follow from that faith, unquote. Americans are urged to believe in the moral superiority of the United States a faith that stands in marked contrast to the political and cultural isolation of the United States today in almost every international forum, and to the still-growing anti-Americanism resulting from the militarization of its satellite states. Reagan, of course, insisted that he would never, quote, cease, or excuse me, he would never cease, quote, to pray that the leaders of the Soviet Union, like so many of their own people, would come to know the liberating nature of faith in God." But this rhetoric does not bear the least relation to the new strategic plans for total destruction of the enemy through a lightning war, as developed in the Pentagon's Pentagon's document, Airland 2000. The new American chauvinism and the unchecked militarization of the earth and the heavens require inner religious armaments. They need James Robinson's television show, Wake Up America. 
in which Christians are instructed to articulate their faith politically. Viewers who respond to Jerry Falwell's television preaching receive letters challenging them to become faith partner crusaders. The second value in neoconservative religion is work, hard work. No sympathy is wasted on those who do not work. In the context of Reagan's economic policies, that meant no health care for the masses of elderly, sick, and the so-called unemployables. The denial of reality, the refusal to acknowledge certain things that do not accord with the ideology, is, in my opinion, characteristic of aggressive neoconservatism. In Jerry Falwell's book, Listen America, Milton Friedman, the ultra-conservative economic theorist of the Chicago School, appears in the role of the evangelist. Every form of welfare, aid, or solidarity with the weaker is regarded not only as counterproductive, but also as anti-biblical. This religious legitima legitimation of capitalism in its most brutal forms has never before existed even in the United States. Quote, the system of free enterprise is clearly prescribed in the Bible, in the Proverbs of Solomon. Jesus Christ makes clear that the work ethic is part of his plan for mankind. Private property is biblical. Business competition is biblical. Ambitious and successful business practice is clearly prescribed as part of God's plan for his people." Unquote. The third value in the new Christo-Fascist, and here is where I'm going to pause reading and note that uh, this is where the term Christo-Fascism or Christo-Fascist uh, originates. And I'm going to read that again. The third value in the new Christo-Fascist civil religion is the family, and within it, the role of the woman. Being religious means keeping women in the place ordained for them by God. A patriarchal ideology of the family complements an attitude of extreme hostility toward labor unions and a rejection of all social measures. Reagan was a master at playing on the deep-seated anxieties of people caught up in massive technological change. He exploited their fear of inflation and of the loss of jobs and turned it, down, turned it toward a different point, namely sexuality. It is not the nuclear bomb that threatens our survival. It is love between two men or two women that endangers everything we have achieved. The moral scandal of our time is not the starvation of a million children in the third world, thanks to our masterly economic planning, but the abortion of unborn life. Unemployment is not the problem, pornography is. Third section of the chapter, Theological Critique. People are told repeatedly that pornography, homosexuality, and promiscuity go with secular humanism, Satanism, and Communism. These last three are lumped together without distinction. The primitiveness of the argumentation is scandalous. For believers who are dependent on authority and in search of something to hold on to, religion is instrumentalized in order to endanger hate, to lead them into battle, and to crusades. It is this instrument instrumentalization of religion for completely different ends that inspired me to formulate a concept that needs some further clarification, Christo-Fascism. In our public discussion, the concept of fascism has been almost completely reduced to total totalitarianism, even by the modern right. All the other essential elements of German fascism in particular, such as its racist mania and its militarism, are dismissed as irrelevant. According to the strange logic of some of our guardians of democracy, Pres President Reagan, because he was democratically elected, albeit by only 27% of the US population, simply cannot have any fascist tendencies. In this debate, the electoral process as such takes on a sacrosanct quality, as if no de democratic country had ever stumbled into genocide in Southeast Asia, for example. 
Democracy, in this way of thinking, is purely formal structure, and its lack of political substance so evident in its militarism, racism, sexism, and in the neo-colonial exploitation of the peoples of the third world is of no further interest. But the most dangerous thing about Christo-fascist religion is precisely that it is not compulsory, nor is it brought about in totalitarian fashion by violence. It is a matter of what critical Americans call, quote, soft fascism, chauvinist nationalism, militarization of one's own land and all its dependent countries, the still unconquered racism that expresses itself also in the reintroduction of capital punishment, the celebration of violence in films, to the extent that the victims are described as communists. All these fascist tendencies are not imposed by violence, but instead are freely bought. And one of the essential differences between this and European fascism is, in my judgment, the geopolitical fact that nowadays the concentration camps are not close to Weimar or Munich, or excuse me, that's probably Weimar because it's German, or Munich, but are far away in El Salvador, in the Philippines, in South Africa, and wherever the great world power permits or encourages torture and murder or has done so in the past. These connections, the internal and external brutalizations, must remain as invisible as possible, and here too, the religious ideological support system of the Western world plays a key role. It leads the population to a freely chosen acceptance of militarism, and militarism, that is, the absolute priority of military, ends over all other public obligations, is in fact a substantial criterion for Hitler-style fascism. Whoever votes for Hitler votes for war could be read on the walls of houses in Berlin in 1932. Anyone who questions American militarism, like the Catholic bishops or some cautious voices in the National Council of Churches, is demonized by the religious right and called an aid to the communists. Within the moral majority, excessive nationalism has increasingly taken on the features of anti-Semitism as well. Dr. Bailey Smith, president of the Southern Baptist Convention, declared at a meeting, and here I quote, God Almighty does not hear the prayer of a Jew, unquote. Add to that an image of the enemy that is not troubled by any kind of knowledge or experience, as clearly expressed by Ronald Reagan when he called the Soviet Union the root of all evil. This remark recalls the Nazi slogan, the Jews are our misfortune. Everyday anti-communism is unimaginably blind. I myself was in a discussion in a, in a middle-class church where, when I mentioned a friend of mine who was a pastor in East Berlin, a woman shouted at me, That can't be so. There are no pastors in the East. They are all in concentration camps, and the churches have been burned. This ideological mixture of nationalism, militarism, family ideology, hostility to working people, and blind hatred of communism is compounded with Christianity by the religious right. The Christian religion is made the vehicle of these ideologies so that in many cases, people who are outside the churches have no conception of Christianity except in this Christo-fascist form. The deepest meaning of the Christian religion is conformed and subordinated to fears and threatening lies, to hate and the will to destroy. In a theological perspective, it is evident that the content of this fascist religion contradicts the message of the Jewish Christian tradition. The God of the prophets did not preach the nation state, but community between strangers and natives. The Apostle Paul did not base the justification of sinners on the Protestant work ethic, but on grace, which appears for young and old, for diligent and for lazy people. 
And Jesus did not make the family the central value for human life, but the solidarity of those deprived of their rights. The most important norms of the moral majority are not contained in religion, in Christian faith, as we can see from the many critical remarks against the family that appear in the Gospels. It is characteristic of Christofascism that it cuts off all the roots that Christianity has in the Old Testament in the Jewish Bible. No word about justice, no mention of the poor whom God comes to aid, very little about guilt and suffering. No hope for mis the messianic reign. Hope is completely individualized and reduced to personal success. Jesus, cut loose from the Old Testament, becomes a sentimental figure. The empty repetition of his name works like a drug. It changes nothing and nobody. Therefore, since not everybody can be successful, beautiful, male, and rich, and uh, here I would insert white, and that's my comment, not the author's comment, there have to be hate objects who can take the disappointment on themselves. Jesus, who suffered hunger and poverty, who practiced solidarity with the oppressed, has nothing to do with this religion. At a mass meeting, a thousand voices shouted, I love Jesus, and I love America. It was impossible to distinguish the two. This kind of religion knows the cross only as a magical symbol of what he has done for us, not as the sign of the poor man who was tortured to death as a political criminal, like thousands today who stand up for the, his truth in El Salvador. This is a God without justice, a Jesus without a cross, an Easter without a cross. What remains is a metaphysical Easter bunny in front of the beautiful, beautiful blue light, blue light of the television screen, a betrayal of the disappointed, a miracle weapon in service of the mighty. And again, if I didn't make that clear um, at the beginning, uh, this was an excerpt uh, from a chapter on Christofascism by Dorothy Swalley, uh, who wrote, who published a book called Window of Vulnerability in 1990 by Fortress Press, and that's where that chapter comes from. And I wanted to read that chapter because a lot, or an excerpt rather, because many of those elements uh, that were in the chapter, that were described in that chapter, were on display uh, Wednesday afternoon at the Capitol uh, of the United States. And while she did not emphasize uh, this aspect, um, a huge underlying problem, especially in the United States, is that of whiteness. And uh, to be sure, uh, Dorothy Swalley was German, uh, so she was white. So she does not bring the perspective of someone who is black or brown. But I wanted to read it to bring out some of the other, other elements that we might look for in this Christofascism. And some of them were very obvious on display uh, Wednesday afternoon. If you were paying attention, uh, some people um, some people shouted about Jesus, about Christianity, and in other places, people tried to erect a cross, uh, implying that their government uh, was also their religion. So. Okay, so in the United States, uh, we have this problem of racism, we have this problem of white supremacy, and in my opinion, if we were to rip out uh, white supremacy uh, as its cornerstone, it, it would mostly come tumbling down for the most part. So yes, we do have these elements of Christo-fascism on display, but we also have to think about the foundational aspects that white supremacy had here and that is extremely obvious if you're paying attention at all during the summer when uh, people were on the streets protesting the murder of black and brown folks uh, in broad daylight uh, by police. Uh, 
So how are these white people who stormed the Capitol building treated in comparison to those of us who were protesting the murder of marginalized people? Uh, these white folks who stormed the Capitol uh, were, were basically throwing fits and complaining complaining about their liberties being taken and uh, I've heard rumors that uh, much of it was ba has, was based on conspiracy theories and um, there are people doing good work on that so I'm not going to go down that tangent uh, but I if you had been paying attention to not just uh, white folks uh, writing about uh, Christo-fascism, uh, black, but black and brown folks uh, trying to tell us that this was coming. And the reason they could tell us that this is coming is, is because uh, white supremacy is in the bedrock of the United States. So I do encourage you to look into Christo-fascism um, if you don't know that much about it and this is the first time you're hearing about it. But I also strongly encourage you to listen to black folks. And off the top of my head, I can think of a few um, that you can listen to. Um, Kelly Brown Douglas, uh, Dr. Raymond Carr, uh, Dr. Will Gaffney, Ebony Marshall Terman, uh, James Cone, who is deceased, but uh, has written a lot of books uh, that are very prophetic. Uh, Bree Newsome, uh, Willie Jennings, uh, and there are lots more. Um, Angela Davis. Uh, pay attention. Pay attention to black folks when they are telling us that whiteness is going to lead to the events that we saw or witnessed uh, Wednesday at the Capitol. And it's going to lead to more if uh, more of us white folks who benefit from whiteness don't become white traitors. So that's my encouragement to you. Uh, listen, listen, listen to black folks, pay attention. Um, you can study Christofascism, but it, in our context in the United States, uh, racism is uh, intimately connected with everything uh, that Christofascism uh, stands for uh, in this chapter, according to Dorothy uh, Soleil. Um, next, and with that said, next, I'm going to read a sermon by another German, uh, Helmut Goldwitzer. And um, if you don't know who he is, uh, I, you can reference some info that I'll put in the show notes because I don't want to spend too much time uh, going into uh, biographical details as that has been thoroughly covered in other places. Uh, and that is not my focus. Um, but uh, the other day, I read a short sermon that Helmut Goldwitzer uh, preached um, on May 11th, uh, 1975, and it's titled The Catastrophe as a Turning Point. And for me, up until the events of Wednesday, I saw the summer of protests as a catastrophe. Um, as kind of an apocalypse, I saw the, the pandemic also as a c catastrophe and an apocalypse, uh, an unveiling of the true values of uh, many people in the United States and beyond. But I never thought that, <laughs> I never, ever thought that another catastrophe would then pull back the, the covers even further. And if, and if you are taken aback by this catastrophe and you don't know what to do, um, maybe consider this word from Helmut Goldwitzer that uh, I am about to read. 
the sermon is entitled The Catastrophe as Turning Point. Uh, Helmut Govitzer writes, I was invited to expound a word from the prophets for a volume of sermons by Jews and Christians, which is shortly to be published. And it seemed to me that this word I have in front of me is the right one for us to hear today. And here I'm going to quote uh, some scripture from Ezekiel 18 verses 30 through 32. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, says the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest your iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed against me, and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, says the Lord God. So turn and live. It was exactly 30 years ago, on May 11, 1945. We lay in the Bohemian Meadow in the May sunlight, chewed stalks of grass, and spoke about the future. The nearer future, whether we would succeed in crossing the Moldau and escaping captivity, and the further future, what would happen to Germany and all of us. While we chatted thus, a sergeant major rose and a big powerful man who up to then had sat silent and went over the meadow into the forest. Immediately after, we heard a shot, and when we ran to him, we found him already dead. The comrades of his group, whom we had met accidentally, said that up to now he had had unquestioning faith in the Fuhrer, and in the days since Hitler's suicide had only said one thing, quote, better dead than a slave. So for him, the catastrophe was an endpoint after which nothing more worthwhile could happen. And so his only wish was to die. A catastrophe can mean three different things. It breaks in upon us and strikes us dead. The catastrophe as endpoint. We raise our heads again, discover to our astonishment that we are still alive, creep out again, and start again where we left off. The catastrophe as interruption. Number three, we hear a signal, an ultimatum. Things cannot go on as before. Right about turn, a complete change of direction, a catastrophe as turning point. But catastrophes are dumb. We must draw out their meaning and tell ourselves what it is. They themselves do not tell us. For this reason, at all times, prophets rise false prophets with false interpretations and true prophets. But who can distinguish rightly between them? A true prophet is a man to whom illumination is given to help him to set events in their right light and to help men draw the right conclusions from the events. In times of catastrophe, we have bitter need of prophets, of true prophets because we have bitter need of the right conclusions men of vision who spread illumination around them. So today, let us listen to a prophet of old times who proved to be a true prophet and discover, let us listen to it carefully, that what he said then to his people in a time of collapse may be just as illuminating to us today. He proclaims a catastrophe as God's ultimatum and as an offer of great liberation as a turning point. Here it is, here it is clear how false the alternative is, liberation or defeat. Of course, 1945 was a defeat, a terrible defeat. When a criminal regime collapses, 1945 in Europe, 1975 in South Vietnam, then it buries beneath it in its fall innumerable guilty and innocent people. And the, as then the churches of the confession, confessing church in which we had received strength to resist the power of evil were destroyed by bombs in exactly the same way as the churches of the German Christians and the temples of the Brown Church state worship, then we had to learn that when God's judgment falls on the evil ways of a nation, neither God nor men will make a neat selection according to good and bad, and that those who give warning by no means come safely out of it and remain unscathed. They have all some part in it. 
we were all in some manner involved and shared responsibility and guilt. We must all bear the consequences. We have had to learn that. Of course, a defeat is dreadful after so many years of war, after so many victories, after so many sacrifices, after so many atrocities. We had to face this. We had to learn that in the many conversations here in Dalim, in which we realized that in this war we did not have any right to wish for victory for our people, but must wish for this dreadful result, defeat, for its own liberation. What the prophet says is a challenge of the living God who transforms the defeat into a liberation, the end point into a turning point. The first, you are allowed to go on living. And indeed, we are allowed, we are allowed to go on living. We survivors, we who sit here and among us the survivors of Israel, who escaped from our annihilating fury, we are allowed to go on living, although what then lay before did not seem very worth living for. After bad years of hunger, we were satisfied once more, more than satisfied. Towns and villages shine as new. Both the German states are stabilized economically and politically and no longer threaten each other, but are coming gradually into normal relations with one another. And also, we do not wish any longer to threaten the neighbors around us, and we are less and less felt by them to be a threat. So it is not too rash to believe that the centuries of wars within Europe are at an end, and that Europe has become an area of peace in an unpeaceful world. This is owing to a new way in politics, which at long last, gradually, for some people too gradually, has been entered on, and for which we will be grateful. For that is the second message that God's challenge contains. Turn from your offenses. Catastrophe as a turning point means also a turning away, unsparing self-criticism, breaking with the old bad traditions, knowledge that the catastrophe was not a natural disaster, not a blow of fate, not merely the result of the regrettable superiority of our enemies. The German catastrophe did not begin in 1945. It began in 1933 with jubilant enthusiasm of the masses and our commitment to the doctrine of the master race, might rather than right, persecution of the Jews, the Fuhrer state, to preparation for war, to the program of suppressing other peoples in the East. And this catastrophe did not fall from heaven. It came from old bad traditions in which our upper classes and the churches have had more share than the workers. Traditions of death, bringing death to others, and in the end, bringing death to us. Why will ye die? This is what the God of Israel asked his people, and his question was unheard as he saw how among us here evil traditions were preached from church pulpits and in universities and in schools, and evil seed was sown. Why will you die? The gospel asks us this today. It is the question of the gospel everywhere, where it is heard in the life of every individual in every nation. Of the First World War, the philosopher Max Schiller said that it had been an ultimatum of God to the nations. All the nations and all the governments failed to hear this ultimatum, above all we Germans, and the result was the Second World War. It was God's new ultimatum, his last in the great world order. For the third world war will leave no trace of us behind. The new efforts that were made in the 30 years since God's ultimatum were in part too insignificant, in part too half-hearted and inconsistent, and in part only an attempt to go further along the old paths with new methods in order not to have to pay the price of catastrophe. We sit in a world of atomic armaments at our Sunday lunch tables, surrounded by the millions of the world hunger catastrophe. The nations have since then undertaken several wars, running the risk of world conflagration. We have a share in the destruction of the landscape and the squandering of the wealth of the earth, by means of which we are making the world uninhabitable for our grandchildren. 
When a people tries to free itself from our exploitation, it is bombed to pieces as in Indochina, or filled with torture chambers and concentration camps as in Chile. We are still in love with the ways of war. We still believe that we can win our life at the cost of other people's lives, and it is, and that is the road to death, which can lead to nothing but death for us also. Why will you die? That is the question that the God of Israel puts today to his people Israel who escaped from our gas chambers and are permitted again to live in their land and asks it to devote all its energies to make peace with the Arabs. Why will you die? That is what he asks the Arabs and requires them instead of this thousandfold death and mutual murder to accept the Jewish state in their midst and receive them as a member of the family of nations in the Near East. Why will ye die? He asks us rich industrial nations and commands us urgently to cease building our prosperity upon the exploitation of the rest of the world. Why will ye die? He also asks the people of the socialist camp and compels them to realize a socialism which is combined with democracy and freedom in order that the rest of the world may learn new ways there too. Why will ye die? So he asks the Christians in all the lands. They ought to know better. They have received from the gospel the vision of a new manner of life, a new society, in which some no longer live at the expense of others. They are the messengers of the new way of life among the peoples. But the Christians and the churches have in many many cases gone along with the old ways of life, with class exploitation and national wars, with oppression and contempt for other races and peoples, and in addition, given to it to a religious veneer. We Christians, above all, stand before God's ultimatum, which is at the same time an offer. Get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. That is no longer impossible. Away with the unbelief of resignation that says we are old men, we are leaves written upon. None of us gets a new heart and a new spirit. That is pure utopia. Just as truly as the new man Jesus Christ has died and risen for us all, so truly is that possible for us, and it is our fault if it seems impossible for us to leave the old ways of death for new ways, to build nuclear cells with new spirit and new heart, with living radioactivity in all nations, which radiate power and help the nations to find ways into a life that will no longer be one at the cost of others, but in which new orders of society will encourage a solidary communal life and nature will no longer be destroyed by our careless exploitation. Repent that ye may live. By hearing that and beginning to do it, we say that to others also, and help them by our action critically to test their traditions, to reject what in them is productive of death, and to move forwards towards a life of solidarity. In this Christian Protestant church, we are today present together as a thoroughly ecumenical community of mankind. Protestants, Catholics, Jews, Buddhists, and atheists from the Soviet Union, we are sitting together in a brotherly manner and hearing the same call of the God who was there for all men, for the atheists and for the Christians, and for the Buddhists and for the Jews, and perhaps, I don't see any, there is also one of our Muslims among us. If there is, he is very welcome. Today, the same thing is being said to all. Once more, a 30-year-old war has now come to an end, the war in Indochina. After the terrible news from Chile in 1973, there came in the years 1974 and 1975 the joyful news of the opening of the doors of the prisons and concentration camps in Greece, in Portugal, in Mozambique, in Angola, in the tiger cages, and the prisons and concentration camps in Vietnam. As in 1945 I went into captivity, a Soviet soldier in Vienna told me in the railway station of the terrible things he had seen at the liberation of the concentration camp of Mauthausen. And while I was traveling to Russia into captivity, 
my heart could still be full of joy about the people from Mauthausen and Buchenwald, from Bergen, Belsen, and Dachau, and Auschwitz, and all that they were now out of captivity. We know quite soberly that every liberation on earth is only partial, and liberations are repeatedly, are repeatedly conjoined with new injustices. This must not hinder us from rejoicing, but it must at the same time be an incentive to hear the call of the prophet. Turn and get yourselves a new spirit. Permanent revolution of heart and mind. That is what the prophet calls to every people who representatives, whose representatives in this place we are. To every group, every religion, every worldview, as the ultimatum and the offer of God for the sake of all mankind in the year of new beginnings, 1945, in the year of new beginnings, 1975. And that is the end of the sermon by Helmut Golwitzer. Are reflecting back on these events and you are at a point of catastrophe, let me encourage you to choose life and not death. And the second reason uh, that I wanted to record this unscripted, unedited podcast episode is to lay my cards out on the table. I'm pretty sure you can gather from what I just read that I am definitely and never have been a Trump supporter. I have alluded to, in previous episodes, have alluded to support for Black Lives Matter. Um, I participated in a march um, back in June with some friends and comrades. Um, I interviewed um, Dr. Nathan Cartagena about his work on Thomas Aquinas and his work on critical race theory uh, and some of the things that came out in the conversation should have given you a good idea of where I stand on these things but in case it wasn't clear to anyone who has been listening uh, for the past year um, and I do thank you for listening. I do condemn the events of Wednesday at the Capitol. I condemn crystal fascism. I condemn white supremacy as it is outside of me and as it is within me and as I continue to benefit from uh, its from whiteness uh, and the privileges that it gives me. And so if that makes you uncomfortable because you are trying to find some way to sympathize with the people who uh, who um, I want to say broken entered, but they did not break because uh, they had help on the inside from the people who decided to invade the Capitol building. If you're trying to find some kind of sympathy with them and to compare these events uh, to the events um, of the Black Lives Matter protests, then I am here to say that this is not going to be a comfortable space for you because I am going to continue to strive to call out uh, oppressive structures um, within various ideologies and theologies that I encounter and the oppressive structures, structures that I benefit from from within myself and um, that I see in other people. So if that makes you uncomfortable, this is probably not the best place for you. But if you're still in for the ride, uh, welcome aboard. Um, I am not going to pander to oppressive structures in any way. I'm not going to uh, uh, give these um, uh, structures and ideologies a platform here. So if that's if that's something you can jive with, uh, 
welcome aboard. Uh, thank you for joining me. And uh, for those of you who are a little bit confused because you're like, this is seminary for the rest of us. I didn't come here to listen to partisan politics. Well, I am operating under under the con a concept that is very real to me that since all theology is contextual, all theology is inherently political. To take a stand is political, and to not take a stand is also political. To not take a stand and to not side with the marginalized and to oppressed is to take a stand and is to give the oppressors more power. So, I guess this is my way of saying that uh, 2021 or as I like to call it, 2020 part two, um, is going to be a year in which, yes, I'm still going to bring you a theologically oriented content, but I am no longer going to hint at or uh, be around the bush uh, the things that I stand for or the things that I believe. So, uh, happy 2020 part two. Uh, if you have any comments or questions, feel free to email me at seminary.show at gmail.com or hit me up on Twitter. Um, and I will have some resources for you to check out in the show notes as they pertain to Christofascism, to white supremacy, and uh, folks who are doing good work, and also black and brown fo folks that I think you should be listening to so you can continue to uh, critique uh, the whiteness that you benefit from um, if you are white and to continue to uh, become a white traitor. Uh, that's it from me. Uh, hopefully you benefited from uh, the readings that I did not perfectly, <laughs> but uh, I hope you're having a good Sunday and I will catch you on the flip side. <laughs>